Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Amen. Alright, you can be seated. Okay, we're in Matthew 10 through 12 today. Um, and to kind of start, you know, I'm, I wasn't here last week, so I'm not sure if this is a total repeat from last week, but it's hard to kind of get into Matthew chapter 10 without having some of the context of Matthew 9, which only makes sense because it is a story. So, one thing we have been talking about, about is how Matthew presents Jesus as the new Moses. So in Deuteronomy 18, God talks about how He would raise up a prophet from among Israel that was like Moses, that would come with the power and the words of God the way that Moses did for Israel back in Exodus. So in Matthew 9, it says this, referring to Jesus. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, Matthew chapter 9 is, there's just so much happening in this chapter. There's a lot of action. There's teachings. There's healings. John's disciples come to Jesus and ask him questions about fasting. I think he heals someone maybe with leprosy and blind men. Um, he, it, it also in this chapter, he calls on Matthew, the tax collector, to be a disciple of his. There's just a lot going on. The other thing is it all centers around Jesus. Jesus is doing a lot of stuff and saying a lot of things. It doesn't go into long teachings necessarily. It's more short teachings amidst the action. However, it all centers on Jesus and what Jesus is doing. And again, Jesus is Moses come again in a sense. Matthew compares Jesus to Moses or he is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Jesus looks out on all these people that have all these needs and all these hurts and all this pain and, and good things in life too, but all the stuff that we need relief from in life, Jesus looks out on these crowds. I think it's a telling thing um, that you see here. You see it uh, multiple times in the Gospels. When Jesus sees a crowd of people, His first reaction, or at least the way the Gospels describe it, is that He had compassion on them. And we, this is kind of discussed um, during the sermon conversation today, that a lot of times we all kind of have to fight an impulse in ourselves that our first reaction to seeing people is to be judgmental. And Jesus' reaction is He has compassion on them. He has this very fast and quick understanding that everybody He looks at has some sort of pain and problems and struggles and addictions in their life. And He's not judgmental about it, but He has compassion on them. And I think that alone is a real lesson for us because our first thought is, why are they wearing that? 
them wearing that says something about them. Getting in that car says something about them. Driving in that, you know, eating at this place, eating that food, drinking that drink. We, you know, we have these first judgmental reactions. And, um, you know, and it may not even be condemning, you know, but it's still what we think. It's still our first reaction without really knowing anything. Jesus has compassion on people. Um, and you see this phrase like sheep without a shepherd that we're going to uh, look at a little bit. In Numbers 27, um, it's time Moses has to start thinking about his successor. Who's going to carry on the work that he's been doing for a long time? Moses says to God, May the Lord, the God who gives all living things, or gives breath, I think I left that out, to all living things, appoint someone over this community to go out and come in before them. One who leads them out and brings them in. So the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Set before him Eleazar the priest, and before all the congregation, and inaugurate or commission him in their sight. And you shall give some of your authority to him, that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, he and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. So he, Moses, lays his hands on him and inaugurated him, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses. So I think this is an amazing thing, that what, what is Jesus trying to say here? What is Matthew trying to get his listeners and his readers to, to look at or to think about. I, I think the audience that Jesus is speaking with knows the Torah. They know their Bible so well that when they hear the phrase, like sheep without a shepherd, they're thinking back to these verses in Numbers 27 uh, where Moses is calling in a new leader to take over the work that he began. To be a good shepherd and to take care of this flock uh, in the wilderness, literally in the wilderness here, and in Jesus' instance, in the wilderness of life. Um, I also think it's an interesting uh, side note here that Joshua, in Hebrew, his name is Yeshua, which means God saves, and that's really Jesus' name. Jesus' name is Yeshua. God saves. And Jesus also takes on the work that has been going on years before him to continue it, to continue that on. Some other context here, I think, um, is helpful. In Exodus 18, at, the, at this point in the story, Moses and the people of Israel have left Egypt, they've crossed the Red Sea. They've been in the wilderness. At this point, they have already uh, run out of food. They've complained about not having food in the desert. They've also complained about not having good water to drink at one point. They're in the wilderness. Um, they complain about food. God sends the manna. 
And it's, an, it's a miraculous feeding that God does of all the nation of Israel in the desert. What we also see um, at this point is Moses is spending, you know, we get a little insight here in this chapter into everyday life to an extent where Moses has people coming to him continually all day long with their problems and their challenges and their issues and Moses has to work that out with the people. Everybody comes to Moses. There's no one else. They go to Moses. So he sits around all day and gives wisdom and advice and counsel to the people of Israel. And, and think about, they're just a new people in a new place, in a challenging place. They don't have a structure and society of life that, to, to kind of run by. And God is the one that is giving, uh, who is the king over them, and Moses is kind of his spokesperson to these people. They don't really... They don't have a structure that they can lean on, so they have to go to somebody, and Moses is that rock for them in this uh, time of life. Well, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, he's a priest in Midian, where Moses uh, was between leaving Egypt and coming back to Egypt. So his father-in-law, Jethro, he assesses the current situation, and he, and he says this, what is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone, why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? You must be the people's representative before God. Teach them His decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. So Jethro sees the situation and says, Moses, this is too much for you to bear all these burdens of all these people by yourself. You need help. The people need help. You must appoint some other people to help you lead and carry all of these burdens. So Moses alone can't do all the work, even though clearly he is an incredible person empowered by the Spirit of God. So he sets up other people to help shepherd the flock. And I want to I think about um, the statement in red here, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain. I, I think that's, I mean, that's a powerful statement in any society in any time because it's so easy to drift into trying to take things for yourself that you haven't earned and especially when you're in a place of power and influence that you try to finagle your way to get some sort of advantage for yourself uh, Jethro says very clearly don't that's not the kind of people we want leading here you want to be able to trust these people through and through. I've heard it said this way. Um, one, of, one of my personal heroes and mentors, um, since I'm in the investment world, is uh, Warren Buffett. And so something he says, because a lot of, t he, he says, if you want to sell me, if you want us to acquire your company, 
you know, I can usually give you an answer in five to ten minutes if it's yes or no that we're going to acquire your company. And he says, look, you always got to have honest people. The worst kinds are the ambitious, dishonest people. The dishonest people, you hope they're not ambitious. But the more ambitious they are when they're dishonest, the worse things get. Right? So someone asked him, you know, how do you so quickly assess people and if they're honest and if they're virtuous or if they're not? And he said, he kind of said it this way, if I was at a party and there was a hundred people in there, the majority of them, 90 of them, I couldn't tell you really if they're totally honest or totally dishonest or somewhere in between. He said, but generally three to five of them, I could tell you don't trust them at all. They are actually, I can obviously dishonest people. And he said, but on the other end, there's a very, very small percentage, three to five people. They have an impulsive honesty and truth and goodness about them. So he said, you know, that they're, they're not into dishonest gain or anything like that. They are just, it's very obvious right away, I can trust those people. Now, what I would suggest is, number one, that's a challenge for us, right, to be people like that, who are impulsively honest through and through daylight and, and goodness and transparency. I think Jethro is trying to advise Moses to look for people like that to lead. The interesting thing to me in thinking about this and going back to Matthew chapter 9 and chapter 10 is in Matthew 9, I don't know what's on the next slide. In Matthew 9, Jesus chooses one of his disciples. And if you remember, do you remember the one he chose in Matthew chapter 9? It's Matthew himself who was a tax collector. And tax collectors had a reputation for not being trustworthy. They were into dishonest gain. And Jesus chooses Matthew. I think that says, I, there's a, you know, this is just up to interpretation here. I think Jesus choosing Matthew with, with the Torah as Jesus' guiding light in life. He wasn't choosing Matthew because he thought he could turn this guy around. I think he's choosing Matthew to say, this is a good guy who's not into dishonest gain. And I want him to be, and I want you to be with me. So, it's up to interpretation. Either way, there's a lesson for us to be virtuous, honest people through and through. Um, and I think you see the same thing with Zacchaeus, really. Zacchaeus is... The story of Zacchaeus is not, this was a bad, dishonest person who turned around. Jesus chose Zacchaeus because he said, this is an honest, really good person who follows the Torah. And you guys are vindicating, you know, you guys are excluding him because he's a tax collector. And you can't just apply a broad brushstroke against all tax collectors. That also is, some of this stuff is kind of talked about in today's sermon too. Um, so, we come back to Matthew chapter 9. Jesus is doing everything. All the work is focused on Jesus. And at the end of the chapter he says, there's so much work to be done. And there aren't enough people doing it. 
So what is his response then? In Matthew chapter 10, he calls the twelve disciples to him and then he sends them out to do the same work he's been doing. You remember Moses lays his hand on Joshua and Joshua receives the spirit that Moses had. Jesus does the same thing. He puts his hands on the twelve and gives him or gives those twelve the same spirit that he has to do to carry on his work. Jesus, it's an amazing thing that Jesus himself, the Son of God, can admit, I can't do this all by myself. And that's an interesting, thing, an interesting challenge for us, right? Because a lot of times we think, you know what, I'll just take this on myself. I can handle these problems or opportunities, both. But Jesus, even Jesus alone says, there's not enough people doing this, even though I, the Son of God, am here. So he gives his power and spirit to the people that follow him. And again, he goes back to this shepherding picture of going to the lost sheep of Israel and tells the twelve disciples to preach this message. The kingdom of God has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Um, and I, you know, Jesus... It's an amazing thing. He doesn't say, like, I'm going to send you out. You're going to be able to do some of the stuff I do, but I'm not going to give you the power to do all of it. I mean, and Jesus, you know, He gives everything to them. Um, in, in Luke chapter 15, in the story of the prodigal son, one of my, maybe one of my favorite verses in, in the entire Bible, when the younger son has come back home and the father is talking to the older son. And the older son, as we remember, is complaining about the father's graciousness to his younger son, or to his younger brother. How could you do this? How could you have him back? Look at all that he did to you, did to us. And the father says, you know, basically, why are you complaining? He says, Everything I have is yours. And I, I think that's what you got going on right here. Jesus is saying, everything I have is yours. And, I, you know, it's hard to live day to day knowing and believing that is true because so often we feel like there's not enough of blank. Right? There's not enough money. There's not enough time, there's not enough, I'm not getting enough sleep, I'm not getting, you know, all this stuff, I mean, you know, I'm not as healthy, you know, everything's not enough, but when we go back to the source and the rock of our life, and Jesus says, similar to uh, the father in the story of the two prodigal sons, really, everything I have is yours. And I, you know, I think that's an amazing place to live from, living with the power of the Spirit, Life is defined by abundance versus living by our thinking. We have our own gifts and doing it our own way. There's, there's not abundance. There's always not enough. Um, I'll, I'll kind of okay, I'll take a break here at the end of Matthew 10. But in Luke chapter 10, I would point out it's very similar to Matthew 10, except that he sends out 
70 people, 70 disciples instead of 12. And I'll give you a rabbit hole to go down for yourself because uh, it would take up too much time for me to do it. It really wouldn't take up too much time to look into this. But if you want a rabbit hole for Luke chapter 10 and Jesus sending out 70 people, I think it's in Numbers chapter 11. Write that down. In Numbers chapter 11, um, Moses is, is complaining to God, there's, I, there's too much work to be done. I can't carry all the burdens of these people on myself. So... Uh, God's Spirit comes on 70 people, uh, 70 elders of Israel, to carry on and help Moses with the work. Um, so, look, it's, it's a fascinating chapter. And it gives you some context to another story in the Gospels where the disciples say, um, you know, we saw these guys doing this work, healing people, and they're not one of us. Do you remember this? So should we condemn them? And... You know, that's, you know it's, that's not a standalone story. It has a lot of context in Numbers chapter 11 where you have the same thing happen. The same thing happen. I think it's even Joshua in that story who complains to Moses, I think. He com Joshua complains to Moses, Hey, we haven't approved these people, but they're doing all this good stuff, so should we tell them to stop? You know, and, and Moses' answer, like Jesus, is... Um, I wish all the people were prophets like these 70. You know, I wish all the people had the spirit of the fire and the spirit of God like these 70 did. Um, so anyway, look at, look at Numbers chapter 11 for Luke chapter 10. Um, okay, I'll pause for a second um, before we move to chapter 11 for any thoughts or questions this, this kind of brings up. I'll jump in one quick one. I mean, the thing to remember here is they've only been disciples for a year, maybe, and Jesus sends them out. I mean, we, we think about the training here, you know, where, you, know you need to have a mentor. And, I mean, Jesus, I mean, they're, they're raising the dead. And Jesus says, well, you guys go. Now, you have to come back at some point. But it's, it's amazing the uh, faith he has in them, that he empowers these guys who he has known who's been disciples for one year, maybe, at this point. And if Matthew, not even that one. Right. And he says, go out, go heal, be me out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm always amazed that Judas was one of those. We don't have anything that says he wasn't able to do these things. I'm assuming he, he did what all the rest of them did, which was to heal. And yep. And then, you, and, and then ultimately, yeah. yeah. And, and you wonder, I mean, if he was, Mike, I don't know, I, I would guess that Jesus picked Judas because he really thought he was an awesome person and good things would happen, maybe. But his downfall was dishonest gain, right? Judas, that's exactly what Jethro warned against, right? That Judas was into dishonest gain. And it, and it caused his downfall and obviously changed a lot of things. So it's, it shows you the trap of just, you know, getting more for yourself, not living from a place of abundance from the Spirit versus 
I'm not getting enough, so I'm going to have to reach out and take it. That's Adam and Eve, right? They had to reach out and take something that they thought they didn't have. Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira, and on and on and on. I've heard, one of the, I've heard somebody say, one of the hardest things in life is to see your neighbors getting richer faster than you. <laughs> yeah, you know, and so, you know, it, it's a trap. It, it's, a, it's an easy trap to fall into. And you see it in, from day, from the early chapters of the Bible to now. What else? What other thoughts or, or ideas does this make you think about? We'll keep moving then. So, in... In Matthew chapter 11, we see Jesus have a conversation with John's disciples. And he already, in Matthew 9, he talked to John's disciples some as well. Consider too that a handful of Jesus' disciples came from John's group. So John had some disciples, and when they saw Jesus, and when John said, This is why I'm here, this is the guy I'm. I'm pointing to. This is the pinnacle. A lot of handful of John's disciples left him to go be with Jesus. So it says something about how similar John and Jesus were, how much respect and admiration they had for one another. And this is another insight into Jesus and John's relationship. They ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus answers, go and report to him. Now, for quick context, John is in prison at this point. Herod has put him in prison. So he sends disciples, uh, I guess, who visited him in prison to go out and ask Jesus these, this question. And Jesus tells them to go tell John, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. I have heard this said before, or taught on this, did John lose faith? He's in prison, and is he giving up on Jesus? Is he questioning maybe, is Jesus the Messiah? I think is really the, the, the lesson or potential lesson that I've heard here. John might be wondering, maybe Jesus isn't the guy that I thought he was. But there's, I think, again, I've said it a handful of times, we've got to know our Bible so that we can know what they're saying. If you, don't, if you don't know, the, and what I mean by that is know the Old Testament, because they live from the Old Testament. Think about all that Jesus did from the Old Testament, and we shortcut to the New Testament. I think that's a big mistake. Jesus did so, I mean, Jesus did so much good based on the lessons and teachings and guidance of the Old Testament. We need to do the same. And I think that's what you see going on here. The one that's not listed there, though, and I always think about this, is, and he sets the captives free. Mm-hmm. Yep. That one's not in there this time. Right, right. So in Zechariah 9, John says, Behold, your king uh, is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. I will set your prisoners free. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. So, John says, you know, are you the one who is to come? 
And why would he say that? Again, I think he's referring to Zechariah 9. Are you the king who sets the prisoners free? Uh, so they're speaking in code, right? And I, I would assume they have to kind of do this because of Herod's spies out there and John is in Herod's prison. Jesus responds uh, with that list of things. The eyes of the blind shall be open. Isaiah has a handful of messianic passages that Jesus goes back to. The eyes of the blind shall be open. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer. Isaiah 61 uh, I have come, he talks about, in the, in the Spirit of the Lord, to preach good tidings to the poor, and to heal the brokenhearted, and to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. There's a handful of other passages in Isaiah like this, talking about the Messiah who is to come, and what they're going to do. And yeah, Jesus lists all these things but then he doesn't say anything about the prisoners being set free so I think John is saying you are the Messiah you are the one who is to come you are bringing salvation and I'm in prison and if you not if you are the Messiah it's since you're the Messiah when am I getting out of here Jesus quotes all these things from these messianic passages and leaves out the part about the prisoners being set free. And I think John's disciples probably walked away with tears in their eyes because they were about to report back that, yeah, you're going to die in prison, John. And that's... T I mean, disciples become closer to their rabbi than than a father and a son do. And so this would be a hard thing to hear and then a hard message to pass on back to your rabbi. Because they could just quote the verses that Jesus said and John would know what's going on. Do I think John is giving up hope here? Not at all. I think John is saying, are you going to get me out of prison? Because you are the Messiah. And think how hard that was for John. I mean, John is Jesus' cousin. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's got to tell him, yeah, I've got the power, I am the Messiah, but you're going to die mm -hmm. in prison. Yep. Yep. I mean, it's, it's how hard, you know, the fact that he's walking around with this power, and he can just say, I mean, he just raised the, he just raised the dead. Right. You know, from a distance. So he's already done a distance miracle. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and John is asking, you know, can you just go... Doors open. Can I get out? Right. <coughs> yeah. Right. And I think it comes back when I'm praying a hard prayer for my marriage to be saved, for cancer to be healed. To come back to that, it does not change his sovereignty. It does not change his goodness. It does not change his power. Mm-hmm. Right. I just don't understand. Right. Right. And so I think for sometimes when we're trying to explain to somebody, we come back to that. There really isn't an answer. Right. But he is who he said he was. Right. Yes. Right. Was and is. Yeah. And is to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
Um, but you know, the faithful throughout Scripture have struggled with that. When Daniel and his buddies were going to be thrown into the furnace. They, they prayed a similar prayer. They said, we know you can deliver us, but if you choose not to, we, we still believe you. Mm-hmm. It was the same. So there's been that struggle throughout all of <coughs> Israel's relationship, our relationship with God, and I think you're right. I mean, we we don't understand it now, but we, we take some comfort in knowing we're not alone in that. Yeah. Right, and it almost you know there's that verse for Proverbs or Psalms I can't remember. You know, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And it's kind of I think one take on that is to trust. You know, you can't figure it out. You can't understand it. Don't trust on. Don't trust in your understanding, or in your understanding of what God is doing. But trust with, yeah. trust here in spite of the facts and the odds. I wonder if John remembered that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've heard. I've heard. So I've heard one rabbi say the Bible is not an optimistic book. There's really, <laughs> there's not a lot of optimism there, but there it is full of hope. Optimism and hope are different. Optimism, you can look at, even if things are going well, you can look at the facts and you can say, okay, there's, there's some reasons here for things to get better. Right? There's, there's something there that we can see. Hope says nothing looks good. <laughs> it's all darkness and headwinds and challenge and rough seas. But God can do it. Like God can do something in spite of all the facts not looking good. And I, you know, there's, so there's a real difference in hope and optimism in the world, especially I think American culture wants you to be optimistic and, you know, keep, keep going forward because you can do this. Here's all these reasons why. And I think the, the lessons of Scripture is, yeah, a lot of times in this world, there's nothing to be. There's not a lot to be optimistic about. But you can still have hope, and hope is better than being optimistic. And hope doesn't always mean you're happy, mm-hmm. but it's but it's better and it's more reliable than optimism. I love that statement. Um, two things. Getting personal here. Um, so I deal with depression. I have for many years. Um, last week was a bad week. Today I'm doing good. That's just why I'm speaking. Um, but seeing a psychiatrist and being a home health nurse who has to assess people's depression, there's a two question scale that we use. And the first question is, and I can remember the psychiatrist asking me, do you feel, you have to ask it exactly, do you feel down, depressed, or hopeless? And I can remember talking to him going, no, I'm not hopeless. I have all the hope in the world. Uh, but I'm depressed, mm-hmm. and I and I I love that because there's a darkness that. I, I, how do you answer that question? I, I think that's an awful question, healthcare system, um, <laughs> because they're two different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just I, that's eye-opening to me. I love that mm-hmm. uh, because it's not about hope. It, it's your optimism and. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just going to sit on that for a while. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really good. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, I think so too. So I'll close out with this, and then we can we can have some other thoughts too to hit Matthew chapter 12. I'm going to hit 
a very small part of it where Jesus gets approached by some teachers and Pharisees and they say, we want to see a sign from you, teacher. And he says, you're going to see the sign of Jonah. And I would love to do like a full semester of classes, classes on Jonah because it's, it's, a, it's a really unique and powerful story. So what happens in Jonah? I, there's one thing that's very interesting in Jonah. In chapter 1, there's this continual emphasis on Jonah going down. And, you know, he, God says, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach repentance because the city will be destroyed. And it says Jonah goes the other way, right? So there's this, you know, repentance means doing a 180. So you see it in this whole story. God says, go to Nineveh. Jonah goes the other direction. And he goes, it says he goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the boat. He goes down into the lowest parts of the ship and he laid down. So Jonah continues to go down, making the wrong choices all along, right? And going in the wrong direction. And the captain says to him, what do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. Finally, Jonah fesses up. My God's the one true God. And he's the God of the sea that's raging around us right now. Of course, they, you know, they don't want to throw him overboard. And Jonah has to convince them to repent to throw him overboard. So they have to change their minds too. So Jonah, Jonah hears from God that you need to go to the city and convince them to change their minds. Jonah is not convinced, so he goes in another direction. He gets, you know, he's down the lowest parts of the boat. He has to convince the other shipmates to change their minds, to throw him overboard. There's, I mean, everybody has to change their minds. There's this emphasis on change. And um, it's... it's uh, the, the lesson or the, the message he preaches is so short, you know. It's you better change your mind, or you or you you will be destroyed. And the and the city does it. That's a fascinating thing because Israel really struggles to to repent all throughout Scripture. They 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 are often described by God and Moses as a stiff-necked people. You know, they don't want to turn they don't want to turn around. They're stiff-necked. And then the people in Nineveh, they just, they do it. And while Jesus, in the sign of Jonah, is saying, you know, he was in the belly of this great fish for three days and then came out. You know, there's some rabbinic understanding that he died and came back to life. That's, that's some rabbi's interpretation of Jonah. I'm not saying that to Jesus, but I am saying directionally there's a lesson here that I think Jesus teaches. In life, if you do your own thing, life will bring you down and humble you. But Jesus chooses the path proactively of descent. Jesus chooses to take the path down. You know, Philippians 2 kind of harps on this with a song, really, about how he chose to humble himself even to death and even death on a cross. Jesus chooses the path of descent. That's the opportunity for us. Will we change our minds to follow Jesus' path of descent or Jonah's path? Uh, will we choose the path instead of having it forced on us through life?
I think that's a unique challenge for us um, from Jesus and Jonah as well. Um, that when, when I mean, I, I think about Amanda and I talked about this recently with when we talk about Jesus and we say, you know, thank you for coming to die to save us from our sins. That's true, but it's a that's a bigger message, and it's almost like it kind of postpones the reward so that we can go to heaven. Jesus came to offer a different way, a different way of living, a way of living from abundance and humility and total honesty and virtue. <clears throat> Instead of, hey, I came to solve your sin problem. That's part of it. But there's more to it, right? Jesus came to offer a different way to live now, as did Moses, you know, and as did Elijah. There's a different way to live now versus, hey, I'm, you know, very little of Jesus' content was about the afterlife. A lot of his stuff was about being totally honest and virtuous and humble and giving right now. Um, I, you know, I think, I think there's more to the Jonah story than he went in the belly three days and came back to life. You know, it's this whole idea of changing your mind. Um, I think that's all I got. We got just a couple seconds here. If anybody wants to toss out any other thoughts, advice, questions from from all of this. First service people, we get to go eat, you know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. See y'all. Have a good week.